one, you're out of you're out of that ditch, you're out of luck, you're out of luck. The ship is sinking, the ship is sinking, the ship is sinking. There's a leak, there's a leak in the boiler room, the poor, the lame, the blind. The ones that we kept in charge Killers, thieves and lawyers God's away, God's away God's away on business, business and enemies it's episode 56 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always and uh today we're gonna we're gonna hit you guys with a little little sequel episode to to a, a couple of episodes we did like a couple months ago on looking at index funds and passive investment. So in those episodes, I don't know the name, I don't know the numbers right offhand, but I know it was like the Global Board of Capitalism. Like you know, we were looking at the, this kind of rise of passive investment as the new way of moving capital, investing capital in global capitalism today, and particularly looking at these kind of big three asset managers, right? Like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. We gave you guys this lowdown of what is passive investment? What are these asset managers? Riff written off of this amazing paper by John C. Coates, who's now in the SEC. So uh, God willing, we get a little bit of change going on here because we got one of the biggest critics of what he called the problem of 12, right? Which is this idea that functionally global capitalism through these asset managers is basically every public corporation in the world is essentially controlled by a board of 12 uh, kind of meta managers who own, you know, massive stakes, sometimes majority stakes in companies across like the S&P 500, across all these indexes around the world, right? You know, that episode for, for, for us and I hope for you was some real uh, eye-opening shit. Like, like it, I mean, it, it put me on a whole new path of, of research and looking at the rise of asset management capitalism. And through that, I've been digging into the academic literature, into the, the, the kind of professional literature around this coming across some amazing papers and some really good stuff. And I came across one paper recently uh, that was published just a couple years ago uh, in 2019 by a couple of political economists named uh, Johannes Petri, Jan Fickner, and Ilka Hemskirk. Um, apologies if I messed up those European names. I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, as you know, I, I lived in the Netherlands for for a year, and even then, my pronunciation of fucking like Dutch and Germanic names not good, <laughs> not great. <laughs> So I came across this paper, actually, so it was published, like like a draft of it was published in 2019, but the full final version of the paper was only published this year in 2021. So we're hitting you with that, like, fresh, cutting edge, hot off the presses, uh, academic literature, investigating. What this paper is looking at is the flip side of that asset management capitalism, right? The flip side of those big three, BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, State Street. This paper is investigating the index providers, right? On one hand, you've got these asset managers, these passive investors who are, are just like, you know, tracking these indexes, the S&P 500, right? They're just buying larger and larger stakes in every company that's indexed. Uh, you know, with this goal of buying the whole market, right? Like we're not, in, we're not picking and choosing stocks. We're not investing in particular companies that we think are going to do well. No, we're, you know, I'm BlackRock, I'm Vanguard. I'm just, my, my goal is just to buy the entire fucking market. But of course, what we didn't really get into in those episodes about the asset managers was the role and authority of the index providers, right? Like these indexes are not just objective. They weren't just handed down to us on high from the gods saying, you know, these are the objective, neutral, best possible indexes. No, they're, they're picked and chose uh, by index providers who are themselves for-profit companies, so this paper, I'm going to give her a little verbal citation of it, is called Steering Capital, the Growing Private Authority of Index Providers in the Age of Passive Asset Management. And it's in the Journal of the Review of International Political Economy. I read this paper and, and it just like the synapses were firing, right? I, I was seeing the ones and zeros of global finance. I was, I was Neo waking up from the matrix <laughs> being like, God damn, I, I, I see it. I see it. These are these are the two perhaps most important actors in the flows, movement, and investment of capital in the world today. On one hand, the asset managers, and on the other hand, what we're going to get into in this week's episodes, the index providers themselves. Yeah, you know, and I think they're, they're definitely, you know, it's underrated, I think, and as they talk about, largely because after the financial crisis, right, there was this hyper-focus on banks, right, both by regulators and also on public awareness. I mean, and part of that is rightly so, because banks, you know, were too large, you know, and or there were institutions that were as large as banks that weren't being classified properly in a similar way that banks were not being classified properly, right? You have, as we talked about, like BlackRock escaping classification as necessary financial institution, right? So that it would not have to fall under a really restrictive set of regulations. I mean, restrictive in the sense that they would make certain profit-seeking behavior strongly discouraged, right? And not right. actually do anything about it. Um, but with, you know, this focus on banks uh, and, and some of the things that they've gotten into, right? 
bond markets, uh, the derivatives, uh, the, you know, some of the fancy derivatives that they created as a result of like trying to make bets uh, on bonds that you know appeared to be fake or appeared to be uh, secure. You know, a lot of attention has been lost on asset management, which is. You know, I think as this paper makes a pretty good argument, uh, you know, just as important, right? It's been over the past, you know, decade or two that we've seen a massive shift of resources from these actively managed funds, right, which are supposed to beat markets into passive investment, which is just, you know, as as we've talked about in the past episode, as we talked about with BlackRock, you know, these passive funds are supposed to just be replicating you know, index indexes and index funds that are already existing inside the market and then paying fees to the index holders or the index providers in the first place, right? You know, and so this is, you know, low fees for investors, right? And they replicate stock market indices like the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, the MSCI World, you know, large indexes that are, you know, service most of the world. Uh, you, and, you know, it's it's an attractive, you know, shift in strategy and investing strategy, especially when the, the recovery has been incomplete. But as a result, right, we have overlooked the fact that by having trillions of dollars of capital shift to passive management of these funds, right? They now are de facto, as they, you know, they call it governing from a distance. So the researchers in this paper and in other papers they cite, uh, they are creating norms and standards for international finance and for capital flows or inflows and outflows that countries, firms, you know, regulators are have to adhere to or risk, you know, losing out on investment, risk losing out on uh, the ability to raise capital, right, or to hold it and to, and you know keep it inside of the country. You know, I think one startling statistic was uh, they raised was uh, that from 2006 to 2018, you saw 3.2 trillion trillion dollars shift out of actively managed equity funds globally, right? And over that same period, 3.1 trillion flown into index equity funds, right? I mean, that is a, that's a, that's an insane amount of money uh, that is shifting, right? And that amount of money that's shifting represents, you know, I think it's easy to just think of it as uh, simply representing, you know, money flowing from one end to another. But as they talk about it, it represents an unprecedented mass migration of money from active to passive funds, which is, again, rational. It's a rational strategy because, Actively managed funds, they're not able to beat the market as they promised to do over the long time horizons, right? But these uh, passive funds are able to capture or replicate, you know, the market as it is. And that's really all that investors are looking to uh, looking to achieve as returns on their investment get lower and lower unless they do riskier and riskier and riskier and more fraudulent shit. Yeah, that statistic that you mentioned that is in this paper, again, you know, I just want to emphasize that, you know, these episodes, yeah, we're going to be bringing in a lot of our own information and a lot of our own analysis, but we are also definitely going to be kind of discussing and talking through the analysis of this paper, which I found just to be such a original and important and contribution to understanding all this, but that statistic there, right? Like that's wild. It's, you know, 3.1 or 3.2 trillion flowing out of actively managed equity funds while 3.1 trillion flowing into index equity funds. I mean, that is such a wild, like one-to-one shift in how money is being managed. The way that I'm understanding it now, right, if we put in conversation the kind of asset, the passive investment asset managers 
the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Streets, they're like the treasury, right? They hold the money, right? They're the ones that are holding the assets, they're holding the money. But what we didn't get into in our other episodes is they're not really making the decisions about where to put that money. That, that Those decisions are being delegated, outsourced to the indexes the and the index providers who are acting like the kind of executive branch of global financial capital, right? So you got the asset managers that are like the treasury, right? They're holding the money, they're managing the money, but the index providers are actually the ones making decisions about where that money goes what companies that money's going into, what countries that money's going into. And what's wild is that just as passive asset management is dominated by the big three of BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, right? Like hyper-concentrated, you know, they have a just an oligarchic iron hold over financial capital, over assets, Right. But just as it's hyper-concentrated and consolidated in terms of passive asset management, the global index provider industry is just as concentrated. Only three firms hold a combined market share of almost 80% of the index provider industry. And we're going to talk a lot about these three firms. So you've got MSCI World, which is which stands for Morgan Stanley Capital International, right? So they're making index that are really internationally focused, and we'll get into this more, but they're also really hyper-focused on emerging markets, quote-unquote emerging markets in developed countries or developing countries, rather. Um, and, and they're making decisions about who counts as a uh, emerging market or a frontier market, um, what countries count as developing and therefore are like, you know, good places to park your money. Um, so that you got that one, MSCI. You've got one we're all familiar with, the S&P Dow Jones, right? That's the S&P 500 index. That's essentially synonymous, treated as synonymous with the U.S. market, right? You want to know what the U.S. market looks like? You just look at the S&P 500 index. And then the other one there, the, the third index provider is FTSE Russell or Financial Times Stock Exchange Russell Company. Um, and that's that's London, right? So that's the London Stock Exchange. So they're really kind of having this grasp over the U.K. and Europe um, in terms of, of indexes there. You know, I think we can dig in a little bit more into who these index providers are and then move from there. Like I said, right, the S&P 500 is the 500 largest, you know, 500 large companies in the United States owned by the S&P Dow Jones Indices, which is itself owned by S&P Global, which also, you know, sheer coincidence, owns, <laughs> owns the S&P Global Ratings, which is one of the big three credit ratings. Why the fuck are there only three? <laughs> this fucking rule of three is driving me insane. It's so wild because they're, they, uh, I think their monopoly is even bigger. I think it's like 85 to 90%. Of the of the ratings uh, industry is controlled by those three firms. 
not a monopoly, not, no. not even an oligopoly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got the big three, but the S and P Global Rating, right? Standard and Poor's Credit Ratings, which you know maybe you are familiar with that if you read <laughs> if, you, if you read the news during uh, like the 2008 financial crisis, right? Maybe. But there's a so, and we'll get into this more as well. But there's so many similarities that we need to draw between these credit rating agencies and these index provider. Uh, uh, companies, you know, that they, they act in much the same way in terms of like moving capital, right? Telling capital where to invest, what's a good, safe, uh, risk-free investment, but also because of that are subjected to so much potential chicanery, uh, corruption, collusion, right? I mean, it, you know, we, we don't need to die. We don't need to relitigate and dive back into the 2008 financial crisis. But, yeah. you know, that was a problem because the S&P credit ratings were, were just giving out these fucking bullshit credit ratings. Right. Being, you know, being like all oh, these tranches. Yeah. These are some triple A shit right here. You know, don't look inside them. Don't look at what's inside these securities and these toxic assets. So we got S&P 500. Now, the, um, as I mentioned, the FTSE 100 is owned and operated by FTSE Russell, a subsidiary of London Stock Exchange. Um, the, the parent company there creates well over a quarter of a million indices for nearly 100 countries. I mean, that is, wild. Like, that is also the other thing. While there's like some big indices, like the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, there's like the MSCI World. There's also, I think, the MSCI 2000, which is like, you know, the kind of 2000 um, smaller companies. Like GameStop mm -hmm. was in the MSCI 2000. But yeah, yeah, these up and coming, right? So you've got these like really big indices, but part of what these index companies do is they're, they're just constantly cranking out new and new indices, right? Trying to capture e everything and anything that you could potentially want in order to create like a view of the market. So the, our third one then, so you got the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, and then the MSCI World, you know, so that was formerly Morgan Stanley Capital International, which um, divested in 2009 from Morgan Stanley, and now just kind of goes by this acronym. MSCI world. While there, there are many index providers, only the decisions made by these big three index providers really move markets, right? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of startups saying, no, we, we've got the best index. You know, our index is great. Our index is good, but no one really tracks their indexes, right? These big passive asset managers, um, as well as other actively managed firms that use these indexes as uh, benchmarks for performance, they really only pay attention to the big three, which all suggest, obviously, that index providers operate in a oligopolistic industry with really high barriers to in uh, competition and entry. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think there's this op-ed, you know, that they cited uh, by, or not op-ed, it was reporting by Robin Wigglesworth, lovely name, uh, who's the Financial Times <laughs> a global finance correspondent. And, you know, his piece was really interesting. He's talking about how, you know, the S&P Dow and Jones Index head, uh, David Blitzer, uh, you know, he's the chairman of the committee that oversees how the stock uh, benchmarks are have uh, been created for the past four decades. And he was retiring in 2019. In the pieces, he was, you know, he was framing it as they do here that in, in in passive investing, this is even more important, right? And he writes that financial indices are arguably the most underappreciated for shaping global markets. Fund managers have long used them to gauge their performance, but the importance of benchmarks has swelled in recent years thanks to the boom in passive investment, where indices form the industry's bedrock. One of the examples here is MSCI's uh, decision to include first in 2018 to include uh, class A uh, shares, so shares that are sold in China's domestic markets, right, inside of emerging markets index. And then the decision to increase the weighting of them from 5% to 20 to eventually 40%, right? This resulted in tens of billions of dollars in additional capital inflows to the country. This resulted helped push the uh, country's stock market to have a 32% rally that year in 2019 when the decision was announced, right? Eventually, MSCI had to pull back because Trump issued an executive order and a bunch of other moves that pulled money away from uh, from China, either through you know divesting government uh, plans and investment plans or by putting pressure on firms that were allowing Chinese firms to um, you know show up in their in their portfolios and the rationale there was offered that okay look you know these companies they don't really they're not transparent or they don't allow independent audits of their finances so we can't really trust them I think as you know MSCI's example points out there was a lot of reporting at the time that suggested there was a political decision and that China had either made some threats or that China had pressured you know, the company uh, to include them in the emerging markets index and that their decision to do so, they had to weigh whether or not, you know, they would be able to get a sufficient cut out of, you know, in form of fees, whether or not they would uh, have to deal with backlash from the administration. Uh, I think reiterating that point that we were talking about later, you know, earlier that these things are composed, right? They're artifices, right? Like you, if you take a fucking time machine back to, you know, 1300, you're not going to find a fucking stock market index. But, you know, <laughs> they are, they're an artificial construct. And as a result, it is a little ridiculous to think that they can be objective. Like they have, you know, one of the key points of this paper, I think, is that, you know, because they're constantly, they have methodologies that are being constructed, assumptions that are baked in that are ideological. And then they also have real world material effects. So sometimes, there's an interest in advancing one uh, criteria for excluding or including a country. And sometimes there are reasons that are unmoored from reality for including or excluding a country or firm. But at the end of the day, it is not like a, it is not solely the providence of, you know, number crunching, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they also go on to add that other researchers have pointed out in some of the literature that they're citing that there's been focus on all other parts of uh, the international finance markets, right? There's been focus on bonds. They've been focused on other, you know, numbers or quantitative. Like credit rating agencies. Yeah, credit rating agencies, LIBOR, which just uh, technically got discontinued. We'll see if they actually do that. But uh, which was like a, a pretty easy way for banks to look at a number and know uh, what was going on with lending in between banks and went to shit quickly because it found out that they were manipulating it, right? So the part of the interplay here is that the reliance or the belief that a number is objective 
is a little bullshit. A number is being compiled because they flattened a lot of other things, and it's obscuring the fact that it's not normative, right? There's, there's subjective decisions being made about why that number or criteria or threshold for performance or for creditworthiness or for liquidity is being uh, pushed as necessary to enter or to to get some certain rating, right? Yeah, I mean, you made a point there, you know, talking about this kind of political controversy around, like, China's inclusion into the MSCI world indexes, you know. It, I found it really wild that, you know, like, the controversy here is about, like, if China can be classified as, like, an emerging market and therefore, like, included in these indexes, which would, you know, mechanically cause a massive amount of investment to flow directly into China from these index funds that just track, you know, the indexes. And I mean, it's so wild to think that like, it, can China be classified as an emerging market? You, you telling me that, you know, a market that is on track to be the largest market in the world, you know, surpassing the U.S. is classified you know, maybe classified as an emerging market. Like what? Yeah, what, 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 what does that even mean? <laughs> China is still emerging, folks. It's still emerging, <laughs> which I think goes to show there's not only all this kind of like, like you laid out, right? There's a lot of subjective value-based, value-laden decisions being made in this, but also there's a, a, a strong Anglo-American bias in terms of, how these indices are put together and who's included in the indices, right? And, you know, that's because the three largest indexes are based in the U.S. and the U.K., right? Like, And so you're going to have this geopolitical bias baked into it as well. You know, I want to underscore a point that you made too, you know, like Robin Wigglesworth, the FT, you know, um, columnist that was saying, right, like, like financial indices are arguably the most underappreciated force shaping global markets. Recently, some other scholars have also been noting as well that uh, scholarship has largely ignored the indispensable role indices play in markets, right? Like, and I think it gets to the exact point that you just made that like, it just seems like a given. It just seems like a, a camera taking photos of the the market rather than what um, a great sociologist of, of finance, Donald McKenzie, has written a book called uh, An Engine, Not a Camera. And there he was looking at the way in which like economic and financial models don't just take snapshots of you know, market trends and, and so on, but, but they drive those market trends. And I think that we are only just now kind of recognizing that fact when it comes to indices and the index providers themselves. quote a little bit from this paper by Petri et al. on steering capital that I think really crystallizes a point that you made that this is not objective, right? So they say, 
In essence, indices are numerical tools that enable the comparative evaluation of groups of assets over time. The purpose of indices is to display the performance of a specific economic entity, such as a nation's stock market, like the S&P 500, in one single number that is relatively easy to understand and comparable over time. In this sense, the 500 companies that the S&P 500 evaluates are perceived as being synonymous with the U.S. stock market market. But that point of perceived as being, they throw that in parentheses. And I think that that's important because I don't think most people even consciously know that it's just a perception, right? They treat that as a fact of life. They treat that as a, as, as a truth. The, the S&P 500 is the U.S. stock market, right? That is how it's treated. But then they go on to say, but financial market indices are far from objective. The veneer of numerical representation conceals the normative values and assumptions underlying their calculation. They represent deliberate decisions made by index providers as every index is a managed portfolio whose composition is decided by the respective index provider. Now, I think this is getting exactly to what you greatly, you know, brought up Ed, is that like this is technocratic right this is this is that kind of technocratic bullshit that we are constantly railing against on tmk where it's like you take something like an algorithm like an index like whatever and you treat it as just a purely technical exercise right but what that does is it masks the fact that the makers of the index the makers of the algorithm, the makers of whatever technology have significant discretion in the way that they devise their methodologies. And a lot of times, consciously or not, or, or rather they're always making these like subjective you know, decisions, right? They're always injecting politics into it. They're always injecting human values into it. They're, they're constantly changing it, right? Consciously or not, they act as if it is just purely technical, as if it is just, it is the technic, it is the technium, it is technology. It, and in that way, it becomes not only like deterministic, but it, it, it becomes like separated from material reality, from human life, from the social world, right? It just becomes its own thing that sets aside like a God's eye view of the market. And that, that's, that's how it's treated. And that lends it a lot of power and a lot of authority. And the authority points are really key. That's a, something they, they are fleshing out or trying to establish here too, right? Because why is it that an index is able to have this sort of power over um, how the international financial you know, community operates? All right, so one move they make is they try to distinguish what authority is or, or and rely on like, you know, so, uh, sort of like, sociological definition of authority that has emerged, right? So first they start on thinking through the fact that, you know, these firms are private actors, right? The private actors that present these products they're offering as technical creations, objective creations, critical gatekeepers, though, at the end of the day, that exerts what they call a regulatory power, right? And so, you know, they, they lean off this definition that says that, you know, they're actors with private authority, 
uh, and they're specifically they're non-governmental individuals, organizations that have decision-making power over a particular issue and are regarded as exercising that power legitimately, right? And and so that is the definition of authority that they're trying to deal with, right? That authority is specifically actors who have that sort of power and then who develop or enforce binding obligations, sometimes for an industry as a well. whole. But that these these providers are not in authority per se, right? Like the way that a state or a regulator is in authority because they have autonomy and they have the ability to coerce or they have the ability to regulate outright, right? That is that is a clear demarcated power of theirs. Whereas these providers are an authority, right? They're an authority because they position themselves as experts. They position themselves as technocrats. They position themselves as objective arbiters, right? And because they also exist within a certain type of social structure that backbones the international financial community, right? And so part of the reason why their social structure and the experts and their positioning and their gatekeeping is important in the political economy is because there has been a retreat of actors that are in authority, right? There's been a retreat mm -hmm. of the state, right? And the gap that that retreat of the actors in authority has left has given room for private actors, private authority to emerge, right? For social structures to become dominant and to structure how people interact with each other and then create material realities that are bound and, enf and enforced much like how regulation would have done that or an actor in authority would have done that. Yeah, we should understand the index providers as almost like the complete inverse of, uh, of like capital controls, right? So like, you know, when the state, you know, when states used to <laughs> do capital mm -hmm. controls, it was the state, you know, really governing uh, and restricting and directing the flow of capital in and out of markets, right? In and out of, uh, you know, largely like kind of like nationally bound markets, you know, that that's the state exerting kind of a regulatory authority over the flow of capital. What index providers do is they don't do capital control. They do like cap capital coordination or capital choreography, we might call it, right? Where it's like, Index providers do something very similar where they are in a position of authority to to direct, like air traffic controllers, um, the flow of capital flying out of places, out of markets, companies, countries, um, and landing in other places, other markets, companies, countries. But they don't do that through an authority like you just laid out that's based on a on a coercion right a kind of threat of punishment they do that rather based on uh the 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 way that they've garnered this position of trust within the financial sector that you know these equity funds these hedge funds these you know these index funds trust the decisions that index providers make and therefore act accordingly and i like this you know there the um there's a book called the geography of money by ben cohen and there he talks about um how quote authority is socially constructed and I mean, that's an obvious point, but it's one that is really good to make explicit because what that means in this, in this respect is that um, the authority of index providers is ultimately based on trust, which as uh, Petri and et al. make the, the point that, that 
then means that uh, the the authority of index providers is based on reputation, right? So this and this this is reputation um, that is embodied by the three big index providers. This is what has allowed them to become uh, so concentrated and oligopoly to uh, hold these positions of authority is that they are essentially brands, right? Their brands, these these three index providers, S&P, Dow Jones, MSCI, FTSC, Russell, they should be understood as brand managers. They, they, they are marketing themselves. They're creating a reputation. They're maintaining a reputation. And through that, they're creating and maintaining trust and therefore empowering their own authority um, that when they make moves to try to coordinate and choreograph capital, capital follows because capital trust their reputation. Mm-hmm. And I think another key point is also that like these are also provider, these providers got there first in a lot of instances too. And that is part of why the brand is powerful. That is part of why the technical argument hits, right? A lot of these firms have been in the markets or represent entire national or regional markets, right? The S&P 500 is synonymous with the United States, right? The FTSC is synonymous with the United Kingdom, right? Or specifically London. You have regional markets, uh, regional indexes that are associated with regional markets like the Euro Stocks 50, right? You know, there's been a lot of work and, you know, early mover advantages and, you know, I hate, I hate the word of network effects, but they exist, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Uh, they are a real thing and that, you know, you you don't really need, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of indexes, right? You do not really need all of them, right? Because capital is only going to allocate, it's only going to, you know, congeal in a few real places, right? Or a few products at the end of the day, right? So, you know, you can really just rely on these key indexes uh, to, to give you insight and then park your money elsewhere if you want to. And there's also the fact that, you know, these investors, they've also created kind of performance track records, right? Using the benchmarks that they have with the methodologies that they constantly modify, right? Uh, and, you know, because of that, it's not exactly easy to jump from one set or family of indexes to another, right? Uh, they allow, investors are able to compare like market developments globally. They can have benchmarks for large futures markets as they point out that increase the liquidity. And they, you know, they can give you risk management tools for the indexes, but it is not easy to really switch between them, even though they're offering a product that is, you know, in the most, on, on most aspects, you know, largely identical in that, like, you know, what the differences are the composition at times, right? The difference is really the composition, but not so much the uh, the return and not so much, you know, like where it's going to be placed and not so much the exposure that mm-hmm. you're going to get to markets, right? Yeah, this point about early mover advantages and hmm, network effects. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a really good point, um, especially to understand the way that they've been, that these big three index providers have been able to like consolidate and concentrate and build these brands, build these reputations. Man, we're all just fucking brands now, right? Um, right. Whether you're on Twitter building your brand or you're uh, an, uh, you know, a big three index provider building your brands, all we got is our brand and our reputation. <laughs> In a world where there's no other authority but your brand. Right. <laughs> and yeah, we're all just brands. That's it. <laughs> 
And uh, I think this gets to the point as well about the like perceived objectivity of these indexes and the way that they kind of, um, you know, they, they operate in the background. I mean, even to the point that like, you know, we did whole episodes on the asset managers, on the index funds without really even asking the question of, all right, just what the fuck are these indexes, right? And now we're asking that question, what the fuck are these indexes? <laughs> and I think a really good way to... Uh, dispel uh the the this myth of objectivity neutrality determinism i don't know, a humanistic god i view whatever other bullshit right technocratic bullshit a good way to dispel that myth is always to look to history the immortal science of historical materialism in <laughs> operation <laughs> and and if we look at the um, the history of indices, it really gives us a, a, a great view of how they kind of came to be um, in this position of authority in global capital markets that they have. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, indices were for a very long time just treated as like a news item. You know, a lot of these indices, you know, pretty much all of these indices were originally published in newspapers, right? Created by newspapers to provide investors with just another source of information, right? And particularly about the, the post-Civil War um, railroad boom in America, right? Like, like the market was, was booming. It was a big upswing. You know, you got that you're, you're riding on that post-war high. There's a lot of reconstruction happening, a lot of industry happening. Um, and so you, you see the creation of like the world's first financial market index was created by Charles Dow, right? Who in 1896 developed the Dow Jones industrial average. Um, and also at the same time, you know, around that same time created the Wall Street Journal. So the, you know, the Dow Jones industrial average was just another news item published in the Wall Street Journal. Similarly to that, right, the Financial Times created indices for the London stock market, um, you know, and they've been doing that since 1935. We jump over to another booming uh, economy, Japan, and the Nikkei newspaper created indices for the Tokyo market, you know, starting Starting in 1949, uh, we jump back a little bit, uh, and the, the the predecessor of the S&P 500, created by the the Standard Statistics Company. Uh, I mean that you know we've already talked about the ways in which like all standard setting is politics by another name, right? right. Um, so when you name yourself the Standard Statistics Company, what you're doing is you're saying we're doing politics by mm -hmm. another name, right? We're doing governance mm -hmm. from a and distance. From a distance. And, the you know, so uh, they were, you know, Standard Statistics Company, which would become Standard & Poor's, was created in 1923, right? So, Later, Standards & Poor's was acquired by, you know, a big publisher, McGraw-Hill. Um, you might recognize that name if you, like, look at the, uh, you know, the spine of a textbook, for example, right? Like, they're a major textbook uh, manufacturer, publisher. And that was in 1966, right? So, it's like, 
we look at the history and the origins of these indices and we see that there are strong, strong links between the index business and the financial media. And, you know, originally these indices, uh, they, they, you know, now they're real time, right? Like, you know, I can look at my stock market widget uh, on my computer and I can track real time the, the movements in the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the NASDAQ, right. whatever. But originally, of course, like, uh, you know, they didn't have the capacity for real time. So they were calculated daily or weekly, right? And just published in newspapers, right? They were just another thing in a newspaper. And and then this era of active investing, right, which, you know, we, we should point out, and I think we'll get into this more, that like, you know, this era of active investing, right, where you've got like highly paid, overpaid stock pickers, basically, right? These hedge fund managers who were deciding where to put money, right? They were going to beat the market. They were doing research. You look at it, you know, watch the show Billions. That's what it fucking is, right? Or listen to the podcast Trillions. Yeah, or listen to the podcast, (laughs) which ironically, the podcast Trillions by Bloomberg is about ETFs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the shift from Billions. That shit is active management. We now live in an age of trillions, passive management, right? Mm. (laughs) It it is. It's it's a beautiful development. It's a beautiful development. How could it not be better? You're going from billions to trillions, Ed. I mean, that's more. That's more. More is better. Faster. We got it. We can't go back. You know, you have to. You you make the machine go faster. 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 (laughs) Right. Yeah. We're going from we're we're going from public. You know, calculating the indices. Uh, weekly to daily. Now we're real time. What we need to do is we need to calculate these indices in the for the future. I don't want real time. I want I want future time. I want tomorrow, next week, next month. And that's what you know. That's what they're trying to do with this uh, uh, trend analysis and stuff. But imp- importantly, back to the point is that in this era of active investing. Uh, which was, again, like that was financial capital up until pretty recently. Uh, Indices were treated as like helpful, right? Just like they were another source of information, um, but they weren't essential to the functioning of financial markets, right? Like actively managed funds basically just use them as a baseline to compare their performance, right? Were we beating the market? Are we providing returns? Indices only, uh, as, as, as Petri et al. put it, quote, only loosely anchored the asset allocation as most active fund managers had the discretion to choose both the degree of replicating the index as well as the time period for doing so. Hence, the decision-making of index providers over the composition of their indices had relatively limited impact as it intermediated capital flows very indirectly. That has all changed. That has all changed. Since the financial crash, uh, we have entered into an era of passive asset management, passive investment, index funds. And through that, the power and authority to directly mediate capital flows um, has has just like skyrocketed. Right. And there's been... There's been, you know, two trends they've identified that reinforce one another and that have been responsible for this transformation of index providers from 
information suppliers to, you know, you know, authorities and of themselves, right? You know, the first is simply concentration, right? Which is all, you know, we, you know, we abhor, nature abhors a vacuum or whatever, the bullshit uh, neolibs will tell themselves as for why market concentration happens. You know, so there were a lot of mergers after the financial crash, right? In 2012, for example, the S&P Dow Jones indices were created through a merger of S&P and Dow Jones, right? Um, in 2014, right, the London Stock Exchange acquired the Russell Company, which was a financial services firm, and merged it with the FTSE Exchange, forming FTSE Russell, which operates uh, the FTSE 100, which is owned by the, the London Stock Exchange Group, which used to be operated by the Financial Times because they made it, but then was sold. Then, it, like, this complicating series of sales happened where the, the parent company, the Financial Times, I think it was Pearson, uh, sold them and then sold its share to the London Stock Exchange Group. Now the ex stock exchange owns its own operation now, which is great. You know, we love we, <laughs> we love we love a clear line of ownership. And so as a result, you know, these mergers are just some of the many that happened, right? And so the top three index providers, you know, were also going around buying and acquiring smaller indexes, analytics firms, uh, data firms, you know, not too dissimilar from the way digital platforms have concentrated and consolidated their position through anti-competitive policies and um, and moves. Not to say that like, you know, oh God, wouldn't it be great if we, we had some, you know, free market competition in the index uh, provision field or index uh, provision uh, industry. But that, I mean, like one consequence of, you know, a, monop a monopoly is a self-reinforcing thing, right? Consolidation yields more consolidation. And if you're in a regulatory environment that allows one firm to consolidate and act anti-competitively, it's going to allow all of them to until they reach a equilibrium, which is like the big three, right? And so, you know, these, these mergers, these acquisitions, they're still going on, right? In 2019, the London Stock Exchange acquired Refinitiv, which is a financial data an analytics firm, uh, for $27 billion, right? This is one year after front of the show, BlackRock acquired the firm from Thomson Reuters, right? So it, it being passed around like multiple times is mm -hmm. interesting, right? As along with the inflation of the value that, that would occur over time too, by simply being acquired by BlackRock and then being forced to be given up to this other company. You know, so last December also, S&P Global, which remembers the parent company, the parent parent company of S&P Dow Jones uh, Indices, uh, which also owns the credit ratings agency. That's one of the big three. S&P Global bought IHS Market, and that's a very large London-based financial analytics company for $44 billion, right? Now, before this merger, before this merger and you know happened, these two firms were big players in the industry, right? They were, you know, more or less competitors in the business of collecting and refining and, you know, grabbing information to, you know, power the the, uh, the skeleton or the, uh, the underbelly of financial transactions and, 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 and capital flows internationally, right? S&P Global was big in the, specifically big in stock market indexing business, credit ratings, and energy analysis, right? IHS market was strong in debt markets and derivative analytics, and also had corporate research that it used to ascertain future trends in transportation, in aerospace, and in trade, right? 
So now that they fused, like some, you know, Dragon Ball Z shit, now they have the ability to challenge, you know, even bigger monopolies and maybe take them down a notch, right? Like Bloomberg, right? Uh, maybe they can target Bloomberg terminals, which are way too fucking expensive, but used by every firm because they have more money than God, right? That Yeah, just in the way that, uh, you know, S&P Global by acquiring IHS Market is also trying to look at like challenging Bloomberg, like the Bloomberg terminals. It should also be mentioned as well that the uh, London Stock Exchange's acquisition of Refinitiv, Refinitiv also has a, what they call the Icon Terminal, which is mm-hmm. also a competitor to the Bloomberg terminal, right? Mm. So like not only are they consolidating through these mergers and acquisitions, they're also trying to uh, uh, create their own infrastructure, their own piping, uh, their own plumbing for financial data, right? Like they're, they're trying to f- create um, these like in-house solutions for moving off of something like the Bloomberg terminal or marketing their, their alternative to the Bloomberg terminal, right? So like, you know, like you were just laying out, right? It's just like this fucking like mergers and acquisitions and competition, but only competition amongst like these big monopolistic firms, right? That's that's the only place competition happens. Competition, you, you can only compete if you are uh, in a in a privileged position for competition. Right. Yeah, you're not allowed to. If you're a smaller fund, they'll just crush you, right? And I think that's also like. The CEO of S&P Global, you know, in an interview with the Financial Times, gave the game away. Doug Peterson said, quote, cleaning, processing, and managing data using technology to enhance the speed and processing power and then putting the tools in the hands of decision makers is what makes an information age powerhouse. And that's the strategy. That's the goal that they're they're working towards here. How can we acquire as many firms as possible so that we can become a juggernaut, so we can dominate the market? So that we can take our rightful place as the big one instead of the big three, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these these things are going to keep happening. The consolidation, the targeting of control, the specific acquisitions of firms that are key nodes in the infrastructure that uh, that powers international finance. I mean, this is this is the logical consequence of if you want to become, as he said, uh, information powerhouse, right? And so the big three, as they exist in index provision, will also be the big three in every other, ideally from their perspective, they'd be the big three in every element of the financial markets, in credit ratings, right? In analysis and corporate research, right? In debt markets and derivative markets, right? In every position that they can find themselves a nook or a cranny to get into. So, so that's one of the reinforcing trends, right? That All of that reinforces itself and keeps it charging along, right? The, you know, we live in a beautiful age of monopolies and trust. You know, they tr- the, the international community trusts them to create trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and monopolies. Uh, so the second big trend triggered by the financial crisis, um, and I think, as, as they argue, was even more consequential for flows and investment of capital, is this mass migration of money towards passive investments, right? I mean, that alone, $3.1 trillion over 12 years shifting into passive investment is enough to make it a significant factor in the way that and constructed the political economy of finance, right? especially uh, of international finance, because index providers are being tracked by these funds, right? Uh, The funds are tracking their indexes. And so if trillions of dollars are flowing, 
then that also means that's trillions of dollars now that's going to be going into the products or in one way or another tied to their products. And in the past, right, indices were only loosely anchored, right, to fund holdings. Uh, and they had like a basic baseline. You know, they had some degree of free form, we'll say, <laughs> or autonomy. For, uh, doesn't exist now. You know, as they put it, uh, they say that now they had an instant mechanic effect on the holdings of passive funds, steering capital flows. So by investing in an index, right, a passive investor is now delegating decision-making authority about where to invest to index providers, right? Index investing thus represents a form of delegated management, and every discretionary decision by index providers has a flow-through effect on the investor's portfolio as a result. Because of that mass money migration uh, into passive investment, it has just taken the authority of, uh, of index providers and these indices to new heights, to new levels, almost almost instantly right like in like you know global time scales right like over the course of a decade or something you know that that is an extremely quick move um, from going to being just another source of information to being an essential intermediary and source of authority for capital it's it's wild when you start looking at the um the at the at the data at the numbers right so like benchmarking against these indices, right? Like the way that these passive funds, uh, you know, are tracking indices has just reached enormous proportions. So as they, as Petri et al. point out, you know, drawing on some data from 2017 and 2018, that fiscal year, trillions of dollars in assets, both in terms of equities and bonds, were benchmarked Based on data from the fiscal year 2017 to 2018, trillions of dollars in assets, that's both equities and bonds, were benchmarked against the big three indices. So in that fiscal year, that was $14.8 trillion benchmarked against MSCI, $16 trillion benchmarked against FTSE Russell, and a paltry $8.9 trillion for the S&P Dow Jones Industrial. <laughs> Amazing. And I mean, compare that to the year 2013. So just four years earlier, four years earlier, only $7 trillion was benchmarked for each of the three indices. $7 trillion for MSCI, $7.1 trillion for S&P Dow Jones, $7.1 trillion for FTSC Russell. So, I mean, we are looking at just a, a, like an exponential growth in terms of the amount of money that's being benchmarked against them over the course from 2013 to 2017. I mean, that is just fucking insane. That, that I mean, it... It's hard to comprehend, I mean, those numbers, because yeah. like those are just numbers that we are like biologically unable to comprehend. But then also to comprehend like like that amount of, of shift in terms of how um, assets are managed, how capital is invested over the course of just a few years, right? Like, like it's clear that, that the financial crisis and the aftermath of that, uh, what was just, just triggered this huge change in global financial markets. And I think it's one that 
Yeah, it is really curious that it's only just now we, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, of these like scholars and political economists who are, you know, doing a lot of great original work investigating this, um, are only just now like starting to recognize, let alone starting to try to reckon with. So on top of this, right, like like a substantial proportion of equity funds that are officially actively managed, right? So like they charge much higher fees than index funds. They purport that they are actively picking and choosing what stocks and equities and bonds and so on to invest in um, as a way to beat the market and provide these market beating returns to invest to their investors and shareholders, right? So while they, you know, officially purport to be actively managed, a lot of uh, like a huge proportion actually don't deviate much from these benchmark indices anyways. Um, so this is re what's referred to as closet indexing, right? Like you're actually indexing, but you're in the closet about it. Um, or, or what's also called index hugging. Um, and it's estimated that according to some data in the European Union, between 5 to 15% of all equity funds could technically fall into this category of closet indexing or index hugging. Which is well, right? Capitalism? Don't you Don't love you? how efficient and rational and orderly and sensible it always is, always will be, always has been? <laughs> always. I Why mean, 15% of all fucking funds are doing this. Yeah, of all supposedly actively managed funds are actually just index <laughs> funds uh but like but like they they're wearing a costume, right? They're wearing that's a, a pretty, costume. That's pretty big. That's like trillions of dollars, <laughs> you know. That's hundreds of billions of dollars at least, right? Yeah. That is just that is being falsely <laughs> okay. I mean, and it's wild too, because like if you, if you're investing your money in one of these actively managed funds that purport to be like you know genius stock pickers just fucking tapped into the financial markets, right? They're bringing you market beating returns, and and you're you're paying like high fees for the privilege of that, but in reality they're just doing the exact same thing that BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street are doing, but charging you like exponentially higher fees for doing it. I mean, they're, they're running a fucking game on you. It's all, it's yeah. all grift, right? It's all grift. It's all grift down to the bottom. It is kind of beautiful. I mean, hey, look, it's not, it's not, the, it's not good grift in the sense that it's other grifters grifting grifters. If it were like some, if it was like some of us or some, or, you know, somebody who I could empathize with, and be like, this is a good person doing stealing that money. It'd be nice, but it's just like a bunch of bankers doing what they always do, just steal. <laughs> or it's a bunch of investors stealing money, which they always do and would do otherwise. But also like crazy. That's hundreds of billions of dollars that oh. they're that that they're moving, and then also in the fees, billions of dollars, tens of billions that they're making in fees that they, that they shouldn't have otherwise because of how efficient capitalism is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the most efficient system ever to exist in the world and we love it what would it. we do without it what would we do without it <laughs> live in a happy society <laughs> george carlin i think last few specials he did before he died and made a made a comment about the only way that you're ever gonna see banking and financing rules and laws cease to be broken is if you executed the bankers
as yeah, punishment. Yeah, I might do it. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's no punishment. There's no punishment that they're worried about because if you, you know, basically stack money on top of money, you can hold things up in litigation for years and years and years and essentially buy yourself time. If you just had Judge Dredd roll up and say, you've defrauded this government of trillions of dollars and just pop them right in the head, that would stop that shit cold in its tracks. Parody in a video game and Hitman, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, yeah, like, right. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy's just laying out, like, uh, you know, we're, we're doing the, some... The we're, Hitman. Yeah, we're doing some, you like, know. community mods on Hitman right now. Mm-hmm. That's that's all we're speculating about, right? <laughs> yeah, dude, I mean, I remember the part where Agent 47 said, look, I'm against capital punishment, and then looked around the room full of investors and said, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then the camera cut to black dramatically. I remember that. That was, you know, that was, that was good. That was a good DLC in Hitman Three. I hope y'all had a chance to play through that too. The 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 TMK DLC in Hitman Three yeah, coming, yeah. Coming, coming soon. It's in the Discord. Uh, it's uh, only for people who uh, pay five hundred dollars a month or more to the <laughs> podcast so that we can come <laughs> to the for mentioning that. <laughs> Tax the rich and feed the poor Till there ain't no rich no more I think a really crucial, like, and what does this matter kind of question or and point that uh, um, Petri et al. make in their paper that we've been making in our analysis, right, is that, like, You know, as they say, quote, this absolute reproduction of the asset allocation as decided by index providers, what we call or what they call steering capital, is the crucial difference to actively managed mutual funds. And we argue this is a qualitatively new development that necessitates research on the kind of authority that index providers wield. I think this is a really important point, right? This is something that we've we've just mentioned earlier is that it's like we're only just now recognizing this authority of index providers. We still have to reckon with it. Right. We still have to reckon with what does this mean for global financial markets, for the flows of global capital? You know, the fact that indices no longer merely measure markets, they move them. They move markets. This this is that role that Ed mentioned earlier, that these indices are critical gatekeepers to capital. And it's through the criteria that they come up with for who counts, who's included in membership in an index. Uh, you know, how does MSCI, how does S&P Dow Jones, how does FTSE Russell decide who goes into the index, who's included and who's excluded, who's removed from the index, This gives them an enormous amount of private authority as they set standards that not only firms, but entire states have to follow if they want to be included in in these key indices. And as we've seen through this mass migration of money out of actively managed funds into indexed funds um, that track and replicate these indices, as well as the large proportion of purportedly actively managed funds that are actually just hugging the indexes, 
to if you want if you want capital to flow into your business, to flow into your country, you have to be included in one of the big three's indices. And that means that you need to adhere to the criteria that they set out. I mean, this goes back to something that we talked about on our episodes about BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, right? It's like, yeah, there, there, there's not like a new world order or like a global cabal, but... But, but maybe there's something functionally like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, damn. You know, if I was uh, if I was a Marxist, I would have like a quote off the cuff, something about like class composition to just throw back at you. Be like, yeah, Jathan, they're all operating. They have they share interests. They socialize in the same places. They spend time in the same places when they're not busy being socialized, educated, propagandized you know, indoctrinated, whatever, whatever word we'll use for their lived experience, right? So they go through the world together. They share the same interests together. They have money in the same places together. Of course, of course, they're not going to, they don't need to sit in a smoky room together. They might, they might do that just for fun, for shits and giggles, you know, wear a little mask, do some ritual, but they also just will do it independently. But it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird coincidence that w- there's so many arenas where it just falls nicely into place. You know, I mean, there there is a there is a good Marx quote that, that, that really represents this. That I I cannot remember it off the top of my head, but it's something that you know Marx is saying that you know to this to this point about the class interest of capitals of capitalists, right? Like capitalists act like capital embodied. The capitalist interest is the interest of capital, and they they embody that interest. And through that, you know, there's a lot of choreography and a lot of coordination that happens in capital that looks like collusion, but doesn't have to be collusion because the capitalists are all just embodying and acting upon the same interest. And that interest is the interest of capital, this like abstract material force in the world. You know, this goes back to a point we made at the beginning of the episodes, right? That's like, if on one hand, uh, we don't see capital control by the state anymore, what we see in its place is capital coordination or capital choreography by the index providers. And that the, 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 these are the beautiful price signals and market signals that, that the capitalists just follow along with, right? That, that orchestrate the movements and actions of capital around the world. Uh, you know, I think in, in this episode, right, like, We've tried to provide you with that little bit of a, you know, peel back the curtain of global finance a little bit. Say, who are the main actors here? Uh, You know, we've talked before about the asset managers. We have to understand the index providers as, you know, part of this, this unholy union of financial capital. Uh, of the movement and flows of global capital. That dive into the, the, that that necessary question of just who the fuck are these index providers? What the fuck are these indices? Uh, that'll bring us to a close for this this episode of TMK. Now, there is so much more to dive into here. So much more to dive into. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into this relationship between index providers and asset managers. Because let me tell you, these these two sides of finance, financial capitalism, 
it's not it's not like a super PAC and a politician, right? Where like, oh, you know, no, there's no no direct lines of communication between them, right? Just one influences the other through indirect means. No, no, no. There are direct lines of relationship and communication between index providers and asset managers. They are in constant conversation with each other about what kinds of you know, how are indices going to be provided? Where will capital go, right? Because like, this is part of the way the asset managers say, no, we don't make decisions about investment. We delegate that authority to the index providers. But at the same time, the asset managers are the, are, are the customers of index providers. They're the ones paying the fees for using these indices, right? Through that, they have a, a very transactional relationship, right? The index providers want to create a product that the asset managers want to use. And so they have conversations about how to do that. But they also have to, uh, you know, walk that tight line between uh, conflicts of interest and, and so on so that the index providers can maintain their reputation and the authority that their reputation and the trust it, best, uh, it, it comes with it bestows upon them. We're going to be looking into that. We're going to be looking into the ways that index providers set standards for corporate governance, set standards uh, for what counts as emerging markets, the ways that states are constantly trying to, to lobby or rather more so fall in line with the criteria and decisions made by index providers. Uh, there, there's just so much more to dive into here. We've only given you that foundation. We're going to build something beautiful on top of that foundation in the premium episode that you can find later this week on patreon.com slash this machine kills subscribe there uh, and, and look in horror upon the global financial capitalism. <laughs> Join us on that journey. Thank you all for listening. Hope to see you in the premium episode. Uh, and until then, later.